hopefully quickly and to make some comments and then we'll come to the Lord's table at the end of this. There will be a sermon outline eventually which I will need, I think, to work our way through this. I've entitled this message The Invasion of the Ark. Last week's message was about the raiders, Philistine raiders and the lost ark. Then this one is really about the Lord invading the land of the Philistines. And there are some truths that chapters 5 and 6 particularly reveal to us about God which we don't tend to focus upon. We certainly emphasise, and it's not inappropriate to do so, God's mercy, his kindness, his goodness to us in the person of Christ. That God is a nice God. It's kind. But there's another, another aspect to his character in which he is awesome. He is full of awe, that he is terrible, he's full of terror, that he is triumphant and powerful and majestic. Theologians talk about God's transcendence, that he is high and unapproachable, as well as he is imminent, he's close, revealed to us in the person of Jesus. And we need to maintain that balance. And this passage certainly um, opens our eyes to an aspect of God's character of his transcendence, that he is holy and that he is a judge. So this story, chapter 5, which we haven't read but we spoke a little bit about last week, is God invading the land of the Philistines. That's a story of the triumph of the supreme God over the god Dagon. The Israelites in chapter 4 have uh, been in a battle with the Philistines. They've inappropriately gone and got the Ark of the Covenant and brought it back. We don't have it, Derek? PowerPoint? It's not projecting at the back? Chapter 4, the Philistines did what they... They were victorious, captured the ark, and they celebrated that and they took it back to uh, the temple of their god, Dagon, where last week we alluded to this truth of chapter 5, which is dealing with this first aspect, that God is a God who judges. Let's go to the next slide. And for the Philistines... Having won the victory and having got this magnificent trophy, the Ark of the Covenant, they bring that in and they place it in the very temple of their god, Dagon, and they put it beside Dagon. When they get up the next morning, Dagon is off his perch and is on his face before the Ark of the Covenant, acknowledging the superiority of Yahweh, the God of Israel. Uh, The Philistines don't understand that. They don't remember there being an earthquake during the night. Maybe it was the cleaners who came in who can be careless and they move things. And so they pick the poor thing up and they put him back besides the Ark of the Covenant, symbol of God's presence. They get up the next morning and there's an even bigger shock. He's been decapitated, his hands have been cut off. That's the ancient uh, demonstration of completely conquered, utterly defeated. And his torso is left intact and he, that is likewise, prostrate on the ground before Yahweh. That leads, the chapter sells us to a particular pagan custom of not stepping on the threshold. But the point to note is that God is triumphant, that he is supreme. Uh, It's 
almost like his message to the Philistines is, don't misunderstand the victory that you experienced. That wasn't me being defeated. It may have appeared like that, but I wasn't defeated. I allowed Israel to be defeated because they've been disobedient to me. But I allowed you to capture the ark because I am going to work amongst you in a judgment way. Uh, God is still on the throne. In all the midst and circumstances and difficulties of life, our God reigns. God's reigning and ruling in your life. I got a text from my son this morning. I don't know what this means, except bad things happen. My son woke up this morning uh, and he found their kitchen has completely flooded. The freezer had gone on the blink over the night, I don't know, it stopped functioning and uh, melted and so they'd spent all day yesterday cooking food for a week or a month and all of that is now ruined. Is God still in control? Yeah, of course he is. Why would God allow that to happen? Well, I don't know. Sometimes God is in those things and sometimes God allows those things, but in all of it, God is still working his purposes out. I'm not sure why that awful mess happened for Shane and the girls, but it happened. What's going on for you? What's going on in your life? Is it a crisis? Is it a tragedy? Is it a difficulty? Where is God in the midst of that? Well, he's still on the throne. He's aware of it. He's either allowing it or he's doing it. In this case, in this chapter, it's God doing it. Not allowing it to happen. It's God directly intervening. Not just in this Dagon Dagon, um, statue, image, but in verse 6 of chapter 5, you have the Lord's hand being heavy upon the people of Ashdod and the surrounding villages. And they break out in some sort of diseases, which in chapter 6, you put together, there's a, a rat plague or something, and there's diseases and... Um, eventually there's death associated with it and the people of Ashdod are just beside themselves and they don't want they make a link this is because we've captured the ark and they've got that right but they want to get rid of it they don't want it near them and so they go to their rulers and they say what are we going to do and the rulers with some very little knowledge of any, uh, the ways of God they say well move it Move it from this town to the next town. There should be a map. Yep. So they move from Ashton to Garth. What have you done? That's multitasking, mate. If I flip down, I'll be able to see the same PowerPoint. Stand here, breathe and talk all at the same time. Is this an iPad? Oh. Can you got an iPad I could borrow? <laughs> if I drop this, then it won't matter, then will it? So the cities at the bottom, you can see, are Ashdod, Garth, Ekron, and there are five others. They're sort of the five key Apentapolis. They're the key Philistine cities. Um, so in Ashdod, go to the next slide if that's not up there already. Uh, God has revealed himself and his judgment in Dagon's temple, the devastation and the crops in the area around them, and now the discomfort and the death. We don't know what the plague was, but commentators vary from either it's a bubonic plague, some commentators, or across to others who would say it's perhaps there is a swelling going on. So it's like hemorrhoids, both in the groin region but also under the armpits. It's incredibly 
highly uncomfortable and also somehow highly infectious and destructive. People are dying from it. What are we going to do? Send it to Garth. So off it goes to Garth. It's repeated. It's repeated. It's God clearly revealed again and again and again. It's not coincidence. It's not chance. It's God revealing himself. And the people of Ekron are killing themselves that this thing is coming to their town. Oh, you intend to kill us, they say. So they get the leaders together again, verses 11 and 12. I know I'm going quickly. And they say, what should we do? We want to get rid of it. Send it back. When we come to chapter 6, we are informed that the Ark of the the Covenant has been with the Philistines for seven months. They've been putting up with his plagues, destruction and death for seven months. And they've got a link. It's linked with God and the covenant and somehow we've offended him and he's doing this and they go on doing it for this period of time. So chapter 6, verse 2, they get their leaders together and they go, we want to get rid of it, we want to send it back. How do we do that? And the leaders respond. They simply say, what you need to do, firstly, is present a guilt offering. It's interesting when you observe chapter 6, there is some awareness that the pagan Philistines have about the true and living God. They have got some things right. They've got many things wrong. So too for the unbelievers we know. They'll have some things right. They'll have some awareness of God and what he is like, but only some of it. And it'll be all mixed up in their ideas, just like for us. We sometimes have things mixed up as well. So you need to make a guilt offering because we have offended him in some way. Well, that's nice. What should that be? And they come up with the idea, which is rather strange, that we ought to make some gold replicas of the rats and of the tumours. Five rats, five tumours, because there are five cities, five leaders, and it happened in all of the cities. And so symbolically they make these solid gold models. And they put that in a chest. If you have a look at chapter 6, verse 5 and following, you'll also see that they became aware that they ought to give glory to the God of Israel. They had made some connection that it was God, tentatively, they're not completely sure, that God is of Israel is to be glorified. And verse 6, they are aware and warning the people, don't harden your heart. Don't lock in your defiance. Don't, don't know, hang on to this. Don't keep going the way we're going. We better respond in this way which advice they themselves will almost break. Um, So the people do that. Uh, They make these gold statues and things. And then when it comes to the point of wanting to send it back, it's the priests and the diviners, the religious leaders of the Philistines, who come up with this wanting to save face a little bit and they devise a test. And the test is, Was this really the God of Israel who was doing this? Is this God at work, this triumphant God who has behaved terribly amongst us? Or is it just coincidence? Just bad things happen. My son's freezer gave up the ghost last night and now it's a flood this morning. Is that God at work? The devil at work? Neither of the above, just things happen in this fallen world easy to go to the third one on that issue isn't it because sometimes it just is we live in a fallen world sometimes it's God sometimes it's the devil 
But in all circumstances, God rules and he is aware. So the Philistines are going, is this God or not? Let's test it. It's a good scientific method. Let's go through a process of elimination. They come up with a test which is weighted against proving that it was God. So they said, A, let's build a brand new cart, one that's never been used for any secular or profane purposes, uh, brand new. So they do that. Let's go and find two cows, two cows that have just given birth to two calves and these two cows likewise that are not just uh, given birth but they have never been hitched, yoked, they've never worked. Let's pick them. Let's hitch these cows to this new cart. Let's put the ark on it and the chest with the gold things in it. And then let's head the cows off in the direction to the, mount, uh, to the road, heading towards Beth Shemesh, about 20 miles away. And if the cows go straight, if they don't depart to the left or to the right, um, if they go there, then we will know that it was God. It's very going to happen. A, these cows with their maternal instinct are far more likely to want to go to where the calves are because the calves have been taken and put in a pen somewhere. The mother cows are more likely to want to go find them than to head off in some direction. They've never been hitched or yoked before and so these cows are not resistant to the yoke. They've never worked together but here they are doing so. And cows don't go in a straight line. They meander and wander all over the place. They get hungry, they wander off in the field and have something to eat, don't they? Well, these cows didn't. These cows stayed to the road, these cows went straight. They'd never been yoked, but now they're working together. There is no driver and they're heading towards a city that they'd never been to before. How did that happen? Well, the Philistine rulers decided they would also follow to make sure. They follow it to the top of the hill, to the border of the land between Beth, uh, Israel and Philistines. Uh, just outside of Beth Shemesh and they watch these cows go straight up straight to town and they go to the farm of Joshua as we read later on in the chapter and the Philistine rulers having watched this having observed this must draw the conclusion well I'll be blamed it was God and then turn around the passage says and like many of our unbelieving friends as well they just head for home there is no response recorded God performs a miracle, does this unusual thing, and the Philistines' leaders, their conclusion is, yep, it was God. What do you think's for lunch? And they head for home. No spiritual impact at all. Amazing, isn't it? God working, God showing, and yet the hardness of the human heart, the indifference of people, and that's the reality. Unless God intervenes, unless God draws people to himself, we can never convince people otherwise. The sovereign God, the triumphant God, the God who is terrible in judgment is the God who still communicates the reality to unbelievers because he desires them to come into a saving relationship with him. So was it God or chance? It was God. So now the ark has returned with these cows to the fields of Joshua. It's gone off the road only at this point. The people of Beth Shemesh, verse 13, are harvesting their wheat. They are excited and delighted to see the ark. They have a party. They rejoice. Uh, it's a Levite city, so they've got Levites there, priests there, so they know what to do with the ark, and they almost do it. 
and they don't do something really important. They take the ark off the cart, they chop the cart up, they turn that into firewood, they kill the cows. You're not supposed to kill female cows, they're supposed to be male cows, but I guess on this occasion it's an exception and God allows it, he accepts it. These cows had been used for a sacred purpose and so now they're offered as a burnt offering, whole burnt offering to God and he accepts all of that and the people's worship, their sacrifice to him. The thing the Levites didn't do, they took the ark off the cart and they put it on the rock and they had their gold objects in the box and they did all of that, but they knew that the law had said to them that when the ark is out of the Holy of Holies, when it's in transit, it's supposed to be covered. And it wasn't covered. Don't know what happened to the cover of it, but it was gone. And the Levites didn't cover it. It was an offence to look on the ark. It was an offence to touch the ark. But it was an even greater offence to actually lift the lid of the ark and look inside, which is what they did. Seventy people of Beth Shemesh lifted the ark. I mean, it was a national treasure. It's a, a heritage thing. It's wonder what's in the ark. You could see, imagine all sorts of, um, you know, curiosity and wanting to have a look. It sounds like it struck them immediately, but when you think about it, it's not quite. It's 70 people did this. 70. Well, it's not 70 people all at once, quick peek down and bang dead. It's 70 people. Lifted it, nothing happened. Lifted it, nothing happened. Lifted it, nothing happened. 70. And at some point, God says, that's enough. And bang, they're dead. Now, whether their death is sudden like a stroke, sort of reads suddenly like that, or whether it's this process where there is this very strong connection. That's what they did, and now all 70 of those who did that are dead, and people put it together. God acted in discipline, in judgment, against his own people. He's treating them worse than he treated the Philistines. Why is that? Well, because the passage says to us that God will hold his people to a greater accountability than he will the unbelievers. To whom much is given, much is required. 1 Samuel 15 reminds us that uh, obedience is very high on God's agenda. In fact, 1 Samuel 15 reminds us that uh, to obey is preferable than worship, all the sacrifices and everything else. To disobey is equivalent to witchcraft or divination. It's offensive to God. To disobey him, to know his instructions and to defy them. To walk in deliberate disobedience sees him respond with discipline. And it's reasonably harsh discipline here. Some people, in fact, ask the question, is God being harsh? Is he being cruel? Or is he simply being just? James 3.1 says that teachers of God's word will be held to greater account, a stricter account, to whom much is given much is required. That's why God could deal with his people so much more severely because they knew better. Matthew Poole, commentator back in the 1700s, he makes this comment. Uh, if I can find it, I'll give it to you. He says, people are very incompetent judges in these matters. God judging and judging perhaps harshly or suddenly, shockingly. Uh, people are very incompetent judges of these matters because they do not understand all of the reasons or causes of God's judgment. We don't know everything. 
There are many secret sins which escape people's man's observation, uh, but God sees them and God knows them. Um, we may look at people and see them as innocent, as virtuous, but God knows exactly what's going on. We can fool one another, but we can't fool God. And therefore, we ought to be very careful in censuring God's judgment, of which, Paul says, it can be truly said, they are often secret, but they are never unrighteous. Often secret, but never unrighteous. He has a terrible, shocking aspect to his being. He hates sin. And that hasn't changed. The God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament. This is Jesus acting against rebellion. And he does it seriously. Read Revelation. Read what he did with his own disciples when he was here. He takes it very seriously. And he responds accordingly. Um, So the people of Beth Shemesh, having lost 70 people... Their response in verse 20 is, Who can stand in the presence of the Lord, this holy God? Who can cope? And in one sense, from a human perspective, the answer is no one. No one can stand before this holy God. So their response is, how do we get rid of it? So they handball it to Kiriath Jiram, where it will stay for the next 60 years. Long time. We're into chapter 7. But our answer to the question, who can stand before this holy God, that we're no different to these people? We can't stand before God in our own selves. We are just as filled with sin as what they are. God is completely sinless, holy and morally perfect and pure. We cannot come into his presence in our own, on our own. But God has acted in history in the person of Jesus. Jesus makes all the difference. He's crossed the bridge, the big gap that separates us from God. God has made us for himself. And the only way for us to be happy is in a close relationship with him. That's the truth. But we can't be in a happy relationship, close relationship with him because of our choices. We have sinned and now there is a gap. And we can't bridge it. But he can and has. And he has come to us in the person of Jesus. He died and paid the penalty for our sin. He, got, he took the whole punishment that should have been our punishment. He returned home and he's left the door open, if you like, and he invites all of us through a saving relationship with Jesus to come into his presence. Who can stand before the Lord? No one except those in Christ. No one outside of him. That's why we need Jesus. We need his forgiveness. He's the one who restores us to the purpose of our creation. Ephesians 3.12 is a great verse because it talks about... um, And now because of Jesus and what he has done and our faith in him, we can now come fearlessly and confidently into God's presence, assured of his glad welcome. New Living Translation. Assured of his glad welcome. God brings us welcome because we are his kids in Jesus. Well, people of Kiriath-Jerim, I guess, were beginning the process of understanding some of that. And 20 years down the road, verse 2 tells us, the people of Israel turn back to the Lord. The ark is back and now they're going back to God, returning to God. So Samuel says to them, if you're going to return to God, you're going to get your life right, then three things. One, do it with all your heart. 
not half-heartedly, not 80%, not 95%. There's a terrible verse in 1 Kings 11 which talks about Solomon was devoted to the Lord and yet not wholeheartedly. He loved the Lord, was devoted to the Lord, but not wholeheartedly. 95% is 5% short. Samuel says, if you're returning to the Lord, do so with all your heart. Fully committed. And in that process, rid yourself, surprisingly, they've got gods, false gods. Rid yourself of these idols and gods and these other things which are a distraction to you and commit yourself to the Lord and him only. You can't have two masters. Love one, hate the other. Serve one, despise the other. Commit yourself. Focus. He is Lord and I am serving him. That was what Samuel's message to them was. So the Israelites, verse 4, did exactly that. They put away their Baals and their Ashtoreths. They handed things over. They got cleaned up their life and they committed themselves to serving the Lord. Samuel calls them to a big assembly for this national renewal process in verse 5 um, at Mizpah and does symbolically some things that are very powerful but a bit strange for us. And so therefore... We're not fully sure of the symbolism, so we'll have a stab at it, but either way, it's filled with meaning and appropriate in terms of our response. This triumphant, terrible God who dwells in their midst is willing to have a relationship provided they are serious. To not be serious with God, to toy with him and to mock him is to invite his punishment, to invite his discipline, to invite his intervening in your life to get you back on track. It is foolishness to behave in such a manner. So they assemble together and they draw well from a water and it says, firstly, they poured the water out. Now, what does that mean? They poured out the water. Well, opposite things but with a similar meaning. It could mean because water was precious and that as they poured it out, it's to waste it. It falls on the ground, you can't use it now, it's doesn't achieve the purpose for which we had it. So they could be saying, God, we have been like this water which we are pouring out. We have wasted our life. We have wasted the opportunities that you gave us. We have been foolish. This is what we have done. It's a confession, symbolically. could mean that. Another commentators say, well, it could also mean this, that like water was precious and in pouring it out, you can't take it back. It's been devoted to a purpose that's now irretrievable. So we are committing ourselves to God and it's irretrievable. We cannot change. We cannot and will not go back on this commitment. It could mean that. Either way, it's wholehearted confession or it's wholehearted surrender and commitment. They fast. They confess their sins. They tell God what they have done and that they are wrong and that they're changing their ways. When the Philistines hear that they've, Israelites have gathered together, they probably misunderstand that they're assembling for the purposes of war. So the Philistines decide to attack. It's interesting, isn't it? When God's people decide to be fully committed to him, the enemy comes against them. Same thing happens today. But God will protect them, won't he? God won't allow bad things to happen, will he? Well, sometimes he does. The choice is not 
I'll be committed to God provided he protects me. Uh -uh. It's I'll be committed to God. And if he chooses to protect me, great. If he chooses not to protect me, I'm still committed to God, regardless of the consequences. Well, in this process, the Lord is going to intervene. He sends the Philistines against his own people in order to teach them a lesson and to reveal part of his character. Samuel takes a young lamb, sacrifices it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. It's symbolically, we're going to have the Lord's Supper in a minute, and there was another lamb who was a whole burnt offering to the Lord that enabled us to have a relationship with God. Samuel, on the basis of the lamb, prays, and God hears him. God thunders from heaven. The Israelites and the Philistines both heard the thunder. For the Israelites, that's our God. For the Philistines, struck with terror, same thunder. And they go into a panic. They are routed, they are pursued, and they are slaughtered. What does that reveal to us about God? That he can intervene and he can protect. He can do whatever he likes. He is a triumphant, terrible, protecting God. And then Samuel, verse 12, takes a stone and he sets it up and he gives it a name, Ebenezer, which means thus far the Lord has helped us. This far. There's still a ways to go. The job's not finished. But this far, the Lord has helped us. We need to keep following him. We need to stay focused on him and he will continue to help us. And the stone was there in order to remind future generations of this truth. So too we as God's children ought to remember what has God done in our life? What has he done in the life of our church? What has God been doing? And there are lots of stones in scripture and so on. In chapter 7, there is this threefold process. Uh, the ark is back. Samuel has called the people to renew themselves. And firstly, it's this clean up. Clean up your life. Confess your sins. Be dedicated to him. Make a choice. Serve him only. Get rid of things that are inappropriate. Even if you like some good things, you need to put aside. Because if the good things are stopping you spending time with or being fully devoted to God, they have to go. He's number one. He's first. We are to be completely devoted to him. Clean up your life. Chapter 7, the second step was look up. Look to God. In the midst of crisis and the Philistine, the enemy coming against you, look to God. This is a repeat of chapter 4 and the, the Israelites this time get it correct. First time, is, uh, the Philistines attacked and Israel, relying on themselves and good luck charms, went and got the ark and made a mess of it. This time, the enemy comes against them and they look to God. We need God to intervene. We need God's will. We need God's help. And they ask Samuel to pray and to ask accordingly. And then at the end, Samuel sets up the stone, Ebenezer. Well, so too, these three aspects are part of our communion service right now, which is where we'll go in a moment. The Lord Jesus has set up an Ebenezer. Thus far the Lord has helped us. This do in remembrance of me. Remember this physical demonstration of God's intervention in our world and in our life. Clean up. Clean up your hearts. Turn away from whatever you need to turn away. Put away 
whatever it is in your life which is not right, whatever things you are allowing secretly or publicly, and make a commitment to serve him only, and then continue to look to him, to look up. I'm going to invite you to stand. Pastor David's going to come. He's going to lead us in a prayer of confession as we clean up, look up, and then come to the table.